Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Being able to control your information and withhold information that pertains to you is absolutely related to your identity, agency, and, and therefore personal freedom. Privacy has always existed. It's just been something that is very contingent on your ability to afford it. And in a world where more people have access to privacy, I think more people will have agency and determination and control. Hello, I'm Coindesk reporter Lee Quinn, here with Electric Coin Company's Product Marketing Associate, Elena Geralt, founder of the Latinx Blockchain Meetup Group, here to talk about grassroots leadership and what that means in the crypto space. Thanks for joining us today, Elena. Lee, thanks for having me. I want to start us off since you're a Venezuelan-American, and I remember your studies and your research from, I think it was 2017 or 2018? Yeah, I started researching crypto adoption in Latin America, but Venezuela specifically around 2017, early 2018. Can you start us off a little bit of context about what it was you found when you were researching, as opposed to the kind of Bitcoin savior porn that we were seeing at the time? So I got started in this space. I was in grad school. I was looking for a research topic to focus in on. I just so happened to be Venezuelan. And so it seemed like a nice way to intersect my personal background, my family, and also just kind of this really complicated experience that a lot of Venezuelans go through, which is the humanitarian crisis that the country was is still going through, this newfound interest of crypto. So when I started studying it, I think one of the reasons why my perspective was so unique is because I was able to... Um, talk to people kind of like in country, uh, get a bunch of different voices around the table. The savior literature or <laughs> savior marketing material that you reference, I think a lot of it came from a good place, but most of it came in a vacuum. Like people were making a theoretical presumption that crypto could be used in a certain context or crypto could be applicable to solve a certain social ill. And it has in some regards, but in other places, what I found in talking to people is that some of those promises were overstated. Yeah. So what did you find was the reality versus the popular misconceptions about censorship resistant money? So I don't know that I can speak to the reality, right? Everybody's reality is slightly different. 
there are certainly people like Randy Brito from Locha Mesh. Um, the um, he also founded Bitcoin Venezuela. There there are people for whom the reality is that cryptocurrencies is a like powerful censorship resistant tool and has been life changing in order to either help them escape from a dire situation or reinvent themselves in in a very real way. So I don't want to like deny anybody's experience. I think the thing that I found is that there's a huge conflict of interest when talking about a product or a tool without disclosing your investment in that product and tool. What I kind of found and what I think a lot of people are starting to say is that if you're going to promote a certain solution or a certain initiative in a vulnerable population, there's really a higher bar for disclosures and informed consent that needs to happen in order for people to really know what they're getting into. In the Venezuelan case in particular, but like in Latin America more broadly, there's kind of a wide variety of, uh, of realities, we can say. There's people who come from a tech background and have been really able to upskill themselves and to work on projects in really amazing and innovative ways. And then there is the kind of like more humanitarian use case, which there have been uh, interesting pilots, but a lot of them are a far cry from the promises of 2017 that different types of cryptocurrencies were going to take over and be, you know, 51% adopted. That was a lot of time, the rallying cry of 2017, 2018. I remember like being involved with quite a few projects talking about if it's going to be successful anywhere, it being crypto, it'll be successful in Cucuta, Colombia. And success means over 51% of the merchants will have adopted cryptocurrency. And so after working on that for a few years, I think the different initiatives who are involved have, have found that it's a lot easier said than done. So what I'm hearing from you is that some people were able to earn freelance income and to do business internationally in a way that was new for them before cryptocurrency, but for the vast majority of people, as a medium of exchange on the ground, it was not necessarily useful for most. Yeah, I, I think that would be a fair characterization. And I would kind of stay away from like vast majority, like the, the vast majority of whom, right? Of the population mm -hmm. of like, the, there's no real, like the majority of people even in developed economies aren't using cryptocurrencies. So in these conversations, being specific is really helpful. What I have seen is that as a medium of exchange, cryptos have seen some degree of adoption, but largely that adoption has been overstated by companies that have a vested interest in, in overstating the adoption. So in Latin America, you see that a lot where companies really tout, this is how many merchants we have, this is how many people are using us. These are our, our numbers of exchanges and transactions on the ground. But if you look like a little bit closer, it becomes apparent that those metrics may not reveal true adoption in what we would consider like my abuela, you know, going down the street and buying an arepa. Like that's is not actually what's happening. And I do want to return very much the idea of cryptocurrency as a medium of exchange. 
But first, I want to embarrass you a little bit. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> to highlight to the audience what it, <laughs> uh, why was I invited you for this conversation about leadership and gender also when you're not a CEO, you're not a protocol developer or someone that we might traditionally think of as someone with power in this space. Did you know I, I went off the clock just as a person to see one of your meetups? And as someone who goes to a lot of these, I was really struck by how different yours was. In a good way, it didn't take any flashing lights or dances or a pulpit and a fancy degree to make this impact. I saw you conducting a multilingual conversation with people that had widely different degrees of technical knowledge all learning together. And for me, something also, I won't be too specific about who, but there were some people there, I don't know if you remember them, that were from a mainstream media outlet that were completely ignorant of even the most basic facts about Bitcoin. And they went on to create a widely circulated piece of content about cryptocurrency. And while that was probably a little different than something I would have made, it was completely correct. And it cited the best available sources. And I don't think they would have been able to do that if it hadn't been for your meetup. So there were just people at this event who worked in tech who were engaging with people who actually benefited from and use the technology. There are people who were actually there to learn. It was very casual. It's two hour potluck. And in my opinion, you were having this impact that by far exceeded your own direct actions. And that's leadership. So with that in mind, over the past two years, I'm curious to hear what you've learned about leading an accessible and practical community space. First of all, I'll say, Lee, I really appreciate the shout out. Blockchain Latinx is um, such a labor of love. It's something that I started when I was in grad school, mostly because it's a hobby. Like I wanted to talk about crypto and blockchain. I wanted to talk about it in a way that wasn't kind of pretentious or, or isolating. Like I, I just really wanted to geek out about this topic. And so I started it two years ago. And since then, it's really just been like a gift that keeps on giving. We still do them. We have them every month. We have people from big tech companies, small startups. We have early stage angel investors who come. But then we also have like weekend warriors, people who work either as school administrators, they work in New York and they just want to get into crypto. And this is what they do on the weekends and after hours. So I think the thing that I kind of intuitively knew, but I've learned and proven through the Blockchain Latinx meetup is that People just need a space. You need to create a space for people to connect with one another. And that's far more valuable than kind of giving people a pre-digested, packaged product. And a lot of times, you know, I used to work in media and, and you're an expert in this area. Like a lot of times we're obsessed with creating like a very packageable piece of content that can travel all around the internet, where sometimes just having two hours together in communion where people can kind of spitball ideas, and there's not a, a barrier to entry, that can be really powerful. Another thing that I've really quite enjoyed is how people kind of created a, I'll say tribe because cult sounds a little too intense, but the meetup group has become like its own kind of after school club. So like people who've met at this meetup group, they volunteer at conferences on their own. They refer each other to jobs. They like meet up outside of the meetup group to talk about different projects. 
has been really fun to be a part of that. It, it also helps to lead when you have nothing to gain. So I think that that would be for me the, the biggest takeaway is that I didn't bring this group together. I don't do this month after month because I'm trying to sell people something. I genuinely do it because I get a lot of value out of it. I know we're here today to talk a little bit about International Women's Day. And I think for, from my perspective, we talk about reducing inequality. In my mind, that includes acknowledging skills and leadership that sometimes gets overlooked in a world where we identify value with binary, sometimes masculine metrics. I'm curious to hear from you, how do you think gender has shaped your experience in the crypto community? So I've had a really positive experience as it relates to being a woman working in crypto and also working at an early stage tech startup. I don't know that that's universal. I wish that everyone could have the experience that I've enjoyed, but I certainly don't think that that's the case. Otherwise, we wouldn't be celebrating <laughs> this day <laughs> and having these type of conversations. I can say that my like past two years working in this space, I have just been floored by the support of, of women in the industry and the diversity of women in the industry. So like I have friends that I still keep in touch with. We met at conferences and they have gone on to be like head of product at startups. And we've met when both of us were like out of work, looking to make our inroads, like get our foot in the door in crypto. So I think what is um, pretty inspiring and magical about this industry is that the barrier to entry doesn't seem that high. Although it's easy to say that now after I have a job, but I don't want to negate the fact that it took, you know, countless rejections, countless hours of hard work to have success. But the underlying thought or big takeaway for me is that I'm kind of constantly surprised and constantly delighted by the wealth of talent and knowledge and, and leadership in this space. It just so happens to come from women. I think like a perfect example of that is Crypto Springs. A lot of the work that Meltem Demers and Amanda Fabiano, Fidelity, Elizabeth Starks, like they, they all are inspiring kind of role models. Um, and Crypto Springs was the perfect embodiment of that. It was just the smartest people in the industry talking about this tech that we're so passionate about. They just so happen to also be one gender over the other. Yeah, no, I've actually, similar to you, had a really, really positive experience in this space. And I'm interested to hear from you. Can you think of a time that a male colleague or even a stranger empowered you or encouraged you in a way that was good for your career? What did that allyship look like in terms of a real tangible action? Oh, yes. Okay. So if this is my story time. <laughs> I have a crypto fairy godmother. I won't call her out by name because... I feel like privacy and consent are very important, but this woman absolutely changed the game for me. I met her at a meetup and the meetup was something like crypto investing for women. So basically like crypto investing, but pink. It was at a, like a very posh kind of Soho coffee shop. Um, it was all a bunch of women. We were talking about, oh yes, crypto. Mm -hmm, so exciting. And then at the end of this two hour event, that's it. And we just like kind of got up. So at the end of this two hour event, this woman standing next to me just said, what do you mean? We're not even, we didn't even open our checkbook. 
And she grabbed my arm and she grabbed the person next to us. And she said, if you guys want to learn how to invest in crypto, come to my house next Saturday and I'll show you how to do it. And we did. We just showed up at her house. And I think over tuna sandwiches and sangria, I opened my first Binance account. She invited me to my first crypto conference and just made so many connections for me. And that that is allyship. Like she literally took time out of her Saturday to kind of walk me through the real kind of user pain points of like writing down a seed phrase and and waiting three days for for your like bank to clear this kooky, crazy industry product that is crypto. So that's allyship. Another thing that I'll say, it's not directly related to your question, but if any men are listening, one tangible thing that you can do if you work with women, especially if you're in tech, if you're in a meeting, just make sure that you're not asking by default the woman, the the only woman in the room to take notes. I feel like that's something that definitely not intentional. I really understand that it's like generations of socialized bias, but um, it really makes a difference. Like if somebody else other than the woman like raises their hand and offers to take notes or offers to take on administrative tasks so that one person in the room doesn't always feel like it needs to be them. Yeah, I hear you. And a lot of times it's just about making sure there's space Similar to your experience, I've had a lot of experience where men took their time out of their day just to help me on background, understand the technology or to learn how something worked or to make sure I wasn't being spoken over all the time when we were in a meeting um, or on a panel to deliberately acknowledge me. And I think that's a really great way that men can support women in a really free, easy, accessible way in their daily lives. Yeah. Another example, like I feel like so much of my experience in crypto has been just like one kind of pat on the back or one helpful nudge in the right direction after the other. Granted, like also a lot of bumps in the middle in between. I don't want to (laughs) gloss over those. But Jill Carlson was such a huge ally for me early on. I met her at ZCon, the very first Zcash conference in Montreal. She was so supportive, immediately took an interest in the research I was doing and then recommended me to speak at Crypto Springs. And that was my first professional speaking event ever in my whole life. What? And um, Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. And you were amazing. Thank you. Yeah. But I was shaking in my boots. So a big, big thanks to, to Jill. And I feel like, like Jill, like so many, like there's Paige Peterson at Zcash. Like I could rattle off like so many names of of people, particularly women who have helped out. Speaking of Zcash, I know that's the focus of your work these days. And I'm wondering if you can think of a few reasons specific to women that people might want lawful yet private transactions. Yeah, I um, have been spending a lot of time thinking about this. Actually, for Valentine's Day, I wrote a piece called Privacy is Consent. So Mm. I think there's a lot of parallels with the way that we think about privacy, the way we think about our ability to own and determine the information about ourselves and and the way that information is presented to audiences and disclosed to audiences. There's a lot of parallels with how other conversations are evolving in the spheres of personhood and identity and feminism. Speaking 
in the context of International Women's Day and feminism, why is privacy and private transactions important? I think a lot of it has to do with having the agency and autonomy to determine how your information gets presented. So for a lot of times, historically, women didn't have the agency to open a credit card. Women didn't have the agency to buy a house. And that has kept women in very uncomfortable financial situations because they're not allowed to fully experience financial freedom um, and economic freedom in the way that a man would. Another example of that, I was looking at the history of privacy, is if you look way back in time, like in the Bible, the very first allusion to privacy is in reference to Adam and Eve. And it's actually a, a story of shame. So privacy mm -hmm. is something you would only want if you're doing something bad. Because, and, and the, the person who does the bad thing is, of course, the like evil, um, <laughs> crazy lady. Um, yeah. She's always up to no good. So I think it's important to really understand how like being able to control your information and withhold information that pertains to you is absolutely related to your identity. It's related to agency and, and therefore personal freedom. And because of all those things, I think it's, it's something that ties very closely to, to feminism. I totally agree. And I think that women only have full autonomy over our bodies as well. We can make birth control choices without social pressures. As someone who's bought the morning after pill in East Jerusalem, for example, or I've also bought pregnancy tests here in the US, I would have loved to have an international private digital kind of cash that I could use to make purchases related to my own body without needing to have any other record or need to exchange currencies to get into the local currency in order to buy the pill. Like I can see that it's really important for women to have that kind of autonomy, both financially and in terms of where our data ends up. Is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you think is really important for the audience to know about gender and how it relates to cryptocurrency? I think one of the big things that I love about Zcash is this idea that privacy should be something for everybody, regardless of your ability to afford it. So the example that you just gave about buying birth control in, in places where it's not legal. Oh, no, 19... it's perfectly legal in East Jerusalem, by the way. It's perfectly legal. Oh, You'll just get laughed at. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Perfect. So if there are places where it is illegal, um, but if you're wealthy enough, you can have access to it. Like abortions in Argentina or in the 1960s, you couldn't buy birth control in Connecticut. There was the first Supreme Court case called Griswold versus Connecticut. It was in the 1960s, and it was the first time the Supreme Court actually referenced the right to privacy, like a, a woman's privacy of her reproductive decisions. It was called marital privacy. So it wasn't, we weren't <laughs> all the way there, um, but it did kind of lead the way to Roe v. Wade. But those Supreme Court decisions had a lot to do with the court recognizing an individual's right to privacy, whether it be like with their spouse or with their own individual reproductive uh, decisions. So going back to what I was saying about Zcash, what I appreciate and admire so much about the project is that the people who are working on Zcash are some of the smartest people in the world working on very advanced applied cryptography. I mean, they're just brains, like they're, they're really wonderful people and they have big, 
big old brains working on really hard problems, and they could be doing it for a very specific group of people who could pay a lot of money for it. And they don't. They, they are committed to doing it for a global digital cryptocurrency with the idea that it would allow for everyone to enjoy and have access to privacy. So I think that's the one thing that we didn't really touch on is that privacy has always existed. It's just been something that is very contingent on your ability to afford it. And in a world where more people have access to privacy, I think more people will have agency and determination and control of how they want to be presented to society. I hadn't even thought about it that way, and I really appreciate you bringing out that perspective. You've given me a lot to think about. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lena. Thank you, Lee. It's always a pleasure. Once again, this is Coindesk reporter Lee Quinn. Make sure to stay tuned for more podcasts every week. For more interviews and insights, check out coindesk.com. Take care, everybody. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.